This is James Cooper with K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District with your Extension Crop Report. Whenever crop seed is purchased, there is very likely an agreement that comes with that seed. It is effectively a contract, whether it is directly signed or applied, that dictates how the crop will be handled after it is harvested. These could be known as seed-saving laws, laws that control the genetics of the seeds by specific companies and agencies, and if those seeds can be replanted from year to year or sold to another with the intent of replanting. There have been court cases in the past where farmers, sometimes unknowingly, have replanted seeds from a crop harvested the year before, only to end up in litigation with the seed company. In some cases, a farmer had purchased seed from a source that didn't have the proper licenses to sell that seed for planting in the first place. And don't think this is only for GMO crops as well. The first laws protecting distinct varieties was passed before GMOs in the 1930s under the Plant Protection Act. Another law, the Plant Variety Protection Act, was passed in the 1970s that gave companies full protection of new and distinct seed genetics. They can control how those seeds were sold, marketed, exchanged, imported, or used in the creation of different hybrids. Very generally, there are three levels of seed protection. The first level is no protection at all. This means the seed has common genetics that aren't owned by anyone. Either genetics never were licensed or that licenses has ran out. These varieties can be saved, replanted, or sold to others to be replanted. There are not a whole lot of crop seed out there without some sort of licensing. The second level is a licensing agreement. It is a contract to the farmers that governs how the seed will be used. These can be actually signed contracts, or they can be implied contracts just written on the seed bag. There is no one set of rules to licensing agreements. Most prohibit the sale of seed to any person and prohibit the farmer from growing the crop with the intent to sell the crop as seed. In some cases, the crop can be replanted by the farmer that grew it, often for a set number of years. For instance, some K-State wheat varieties can be replanted up to three times after the initial purchase of certified seed. However, that farmer can't sell the seed to another to be replanted as a green crop without the proper licensing. The third level is the most restrictive, a utility patent. This is often the case when a seed variety has been developed by a seed company, but it can pertain to university-created seed varieties as well. These varieties and their genetics are held within the U.S. Patent Office. These varieties are entirely controlled by the company, so they cannot be planted and they cannot be used in research without permission. I would say a majority of newer corn and soybean varieties have a patent at least ones developed in the past 20 years. Some of the newer wheat varieties do too. In conclusion, it is important to know the rules of replanting a specific variety if you plan to do so. There are farmers in the area that have moved back to the old, non-protected corn and soybean varieties. If you have questions about K-State seed variety, let me know and we can ask the seed foundations. It is, however, very difficult to find out the rules on company-created varieties. If you have any questions about seed replanting laws, let me know and we can look into it. Give me a call at 620-724-8233. This has been James Coover with your Extension Group Report. Next up, we'll have Wendy Powell, Livestock Production Agent for the Wildcat District. Hi, this is Wendy Powell, your Livestock Production Agent with the Wildcat Extension District. Internal parasite control is a long-term, continuous program. In horses, control is achieved by combining chemical treatment and management practices. Goal is to limit parasite infections so animals remain healthy and clinical illness does not develop. 
It's impossible to eradicate all parasites from an individual, nor is that even desired. There are a couple of easy steps to take. Managers can monitor the environment, especially when conditions are ripe for egg and larval development. Secondly, timely use of dewormer treatments that match the parasite stage will help prevent the spread from animal to animal. Let's discuss some non-chemical options available to horse managers. Regular rotation of pastures or paddocks. This will help lower the worm burden as well as give forage a chance to recover. When horses are allowed to graze in large areas or rotated frequently, they're less likely to graze near infective piles of horse manure, decreasing the chances of picking up larvae. If possible, pasture a different livestock species like cattle, sheep, or goats behind the horses. These species will interrupt the parasite life cycle. Stalled stock should have their living area cleaned regularly and manure properly composted. All livestock should be fed their grain and hay from some type of rack or trough, even pastured horses. This keeps the animals from consuming dirt and other contaminants that are easily picked up from ground feeding. Avoid overstocking pastures. This prevents overgrazing and reduces exposure to parasites. Grouping horses according to their age will help minimize young horse exposure to roundworms. Harrowing pastures, commonly known as dragging, is only recommended during extremely hot, dry conditions when horses can be removed from the pasture for a minimum of two weeks. Work with your local vet for a chemical deworming program. In recent years, parasites that are resistant to dewormers have become increasingly identified in horses. It's now considered imperative that some untreated parasites not exposed to chemical dewormers remain in the environment to combat dewormer resistance. Another tactic to prevent resistance is to have fecal exams done on horses to confirm egg counts. Treat only those horses with significant worm loads, around 200 eggs per gram. This lowers the usage of chemical dewormers and targets only the horses that demonstrate need. Always follow the label instructions of a dewormer when administering it to a horse. Deworm horses based on their weight. When using a paste product, confirm that the horse has a clean oral cavity, free from feed debris. Working with your vet will help to monitor the effectiveness of your chemical deworming program. For more information, give me a call at the Labette County Extension Office, 620-784-5337. Thanks, Wendy. And now, here's David Scrantz, Natural Resource and Diversified Ag Agent, with her report. This is Adavon Strantz, one of the Agriculture and Natural Resource Agents from the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District of Crawford, Labette, Montgomery, and Wilson Counties with your K-State Research and Extension report. Last week, I talked about the different types of voles in Kansas and how their populations can fluctuate if they have an ideal habitat. For those who might not be familiar with voles, voles are small mammals that live throughout Kansas. Sometimes they are referred to as meadow mice. Voles are compact rodents with short tails, stocky bodies, big heads, and short legs. Their eyes are small and ears are partially hidden. They are usually brown or gray, but colors can vary widely. Today, I will be discussing what voles eat and how you can identify damage that has been caused by voles. Voles eat a variety of plants such as grasses, legumes, and crops. 
in horticultural plantings such as flower and shrub plantings, orchards, and lawn and gardens, voles can cause damage by eating flower buds, clipping grass stems, girdling stems of woody plants, and gnawing roots. Meadow and prairie voles construct surface runways that can be recognized by closely clipped vegetation that provides travel lanes under ground cover. The runways are usually hidden beneath a protective layer of grass or other dense ground cover. Small holes lead to underground runways and nesting areas. Gnaw marks about an eighth of an inch wide and three eighths of an inch long are found on trees or woody vegetation. Usually, it is not necessary to distinguish between the species to control the damage. Signs of prairie and meadow voles are found mostly above ground, such as trails in the grass and grass clippings, and feces at the base of large clumps of grass. Feces may be brown or green in color, shaped like wheat grains, and are frequently left in small piles. Surface runways at ground level usually lead to entrance holes, which are about one and a half inch in diameter. Girdling of the tree at ground level will reveal paired grooves left by chisel-like teeth. Girdling completely around the tree trunk will kill the tree, so any indication of above ground damage is cause for instituting a control program. Rabbits also chew on trees, but the girdling begins several inches above the soil surface. Rabbits have much larger incisor teeth than voles, which will be reflected in the size of the grooves of the girdled tree. Rabbit damage can be controlled with a plastic tree guard, but these devices will not prevent damage from prairie or meadow voles. Voles do not commonly invade homes and should not be confused with the house mouse. House mice are smaller in size than voles, have large ears, and a longer tail. Thank you, Adavin. And now, here is Jesse Gilmore with his report. With K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District, this is Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's edition of the Hort Report. Potatoes are one of the most used vegetables in the kitchen, so it's no surprise that most people want them in their gardens too. As soon as the soil can be worked in the spring, you can plant potatoes. A good rule of thumb is to plant potatoes around St. Patrick's Day, but the earlier potatoes are planted, the greater your yield will be. You should purchase seed potato instead of relying on grocery store potatoes. Not only will seed potatoes germinate, but seed potatoes are guaranteed to be disease-free. Look for the blue label for the best quality seeds. One pound of seed potatoes results in 8 to 10 seeds, which will plant about 10 row feet. These seeds should be cut up and held for 5 to 7 days in a room that stays steady between 60 and 70 degrees. This process is known as curing, and the seeds that cure will be more resistant to freezes and rot. Once your seeds have cured, it's time for planting. Plant the seeds 3 to 4 inches deep to encourage emergence. Once the plants have sprouted, rake away the top two inches of soil and firm up the rest of the soil around the seed. Tubers will develop along the stem above the seed, so rows should be mounded as more potatoes grow. Begin mounding once the plant hits six inches tall and continue to mound until the ridge is 10 to 12 inches high to keep new tubers from peeking out and developing toxic chemicals from the exposure to sunlight. Harvesting can begin at any time, but you will get maximum yield and tubers with tougher skins if you wait until the vines are half dead. 
Take care not to wait until the vines are fully dead, as this can cause developed tubers to sprout new stems, which reduces quality. Optimal storage conditions will depend on whether you're harvesting spring or fall potatoes. Spring potatoes should be ready to harvest around mid-July, and fall potatoes should be ready to harvest around mid-October. In the July harvest, potatoes should be stored between 55 and 60 degrees. In the fall, potatoes should be stored between 35 and 40 degrees, but in a spot that has no risk of freezing. In both cases, the storage area should be dark to avoid the potatoes turning green. Starches are converted to sugars at temperatures around 40 degrees, which will give the potatoes a sweet taste. You can reverse this by storing them at room temperature a week before use. Potatoes stored at 40 degrees should keep for 6 to 8 months without developing sprouts, but sprouts are more likely with higher humidity. One surprising product you can use to prevent the sprouting of stored potatoes is peppermint oil. This organic product has been shown in research studies to reduce weight loss of stored potatoes by 40% after 4 months. While used in high-tech commercial production, a wicking method using blotter paper should be sufficient for most home gardeners. Saturate a small piece of blotter paper with peppermint oil and place it in the same container as the potatoes. The oil will evaporate and inhibit cell division of the apical meristems that form sprouts. Understand, though, that this is a temporary solution. The oil on the blotter paper will completely evaporate within three weeks and need replacing if you want to continue to keep your stored potatoes sproutless. For more information on today's topic, contact your local extension office. I can be reached at 620-724-8233 or by email at jr637 at ksu.edu. Thank you, Jesse, and thank you for listening to K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District Ag Team on KGGF 690 Radio.